Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of the Where Am I series, which includes Where Am I Wearing, Where Am I Eating, Where Am I Giving? And today and throughout the podcast, we're basically talking to people who give a damn. And so I'm joined by someone who gives a damn, my good buddy, Jay Mormon. Jay, how are you doing today? Kelsey, uh, I'm good. I'm uh, struggling through all this stuff like everybody else, but in our tradition, I have a uh, nice beer with me here. So, Yeah, do you know, I'm actually, we haven't done this in a while, but I'm drinking a Rheingeist made in Cincinnati. The truth. I'm drinking the truth. You know what? I need to. Yes, I've I've had that, and I'm trying to remember what it is I'm drinking. And I'm gonna look. Oh, Shinerbach. Oh, okay. Isn't that a Cincinnati beer too? I don't. Am I crazy? I don't don't know. know. I don't know much about beer. It's not a beer show. It's not a beer show. So I was over your house that one time. People were talking about these beers, waiting in line, driving all this distance to get these fancy beers. Yeah, I'm not. I mean. I like to you drink it. Like fancy beer. But waiting in line. No. Fancy beer. I don't know. No. Especially well, not right now. Well, we have lots of reasons to drink right now as a, yep. as a world. Um, and so this week we're talking about jobs. And um, it's kind of crazy. Like, how are things for you in this crazy economy and, your, and in your job? Uh, well, it's really been interesting. You know, there's – and I know this is true. Everybody seems to be doing – lots of things in their lives, right? So people that have full-time jobs and have younger kids are now parenting, teaching, educating, and performing their job all at the same time. For me, it is, um, you know, really trying to keep a private company driving forward, uh, making do with some of the changes and loss of revenue that we see in an economy like this. And then, um, and then at the same time, for the people that are employed, helping to balance those emotional issues that come up. And then you got to deal with all the home stuff, too. So I've got, as you know, I've got two of my college students are home. The house is full again, which we didn't expect, other than like an Easter or a Christmas or a Thanksgiving or whatever holidays. Um, we didn't expect to have the house full again. So really, man, it feels like just a, it's an emotional juggle of so many things at once, not to mention just the you know, you're watching the global economy and watching just the emotional uh, uh, side of uh, the sickness and the death and all the reports and it's difficult, but uh, work is the place where we got to focus to keep, uh, keep things moving forward. Um, but it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uh, job really matters. I've been watching my friends from around the world, different nonprofits, uh, uh, someone that we talked to, Rosie, in mm-hmm. Kenya, passing yeah. out, um, you know, food to folks to just try to, you know, in her in, the informal settlement where she lives, just trying to keep people afloat. And, and they're kind of in the informal economy. And so it's a really struggle mm-hmm. for them. Um, but it's also a big struggle here in the United States. And it's, it's just staggering the amount of jobs that have been lost in the, in the last yeah. three weeks, which is basically the shutdown is what, maybe a month now um is it is that about right but like, yeah that's that's un- about it's early march right the yeah. unemployment really started to happen because uh, i think at first people weren't quite sure and now the unemployment's really starting to happen so the last three weeks 15 million americans lost their jobs um and unemployment's projected to hit 16 percent 
by July. It was at like three percent. It was like a historic low. Yeah, um, unheard that's of. Worse, that's worse than the Great Depression. I mean, these yeah. are just. I mean, this is something that is going to mark our history and our lives, and and we don't quite know exactly how it's going to yeah. uh, change things. But you know, heart breaks for people in in our own country and around the world who. Um, are really just trying to figure things out. How are you going to, yeah. what's the future look like? And I don't think any of us have that answer. No. And, and I know you've watched it like I have, but I watch friends and relatives and others as they've tried to navigate the, I was doing this. Now I've got to go do this. Um, some of them in worse situations than others. Um, but you know, jobs provide purpose and um, you know, I'm not a, a pure blooded capitalist by any means. Um, but it, they, it gives you something to shoot for. You can control your destiny at least somewhat. Um, you know, you can shoot for something better, increase your standard of living. But I think one of the things this points out is this capitalist engine that didn't serve everyone equally. And we've talked about that and I know we will continue to, but it did serve a lot. Well, that engine is, is somebody turned the key off and it, uh, it, it is absolutely stalled uh, so that you, you just, try to hold on and uh, you know the federal government can put a bunch of money in it and hope that that helps um you know at least sustain us through but um it is a very it's a very unusual situation and never seen anything like it before um and you know there's a lot of people applying for unemployment that weren't and never planned to and haven't in the past um, yeah and what a change that is i've never done that you yep. but I'm, uh, i may have to at some point yeah i mean I, I hope not. And, you know, I feel for all those folks. I, I was on unemployment one time and it was the last financial crisis. I was working for um, my family's business at a construction, mom, dad, a construction business that and they lost their business and you know, the, the bank came and took it away. And uh, with it, my job, but it felt like it was much more than my job. People I had known for, you know, that worked for their company for 20, more than 20 years, uh, suddenly didn't see each other every day and, and yeah. had, you know, built their families and careers around, around this job and those and dissolved. And um, I, you know, I filed for unemployment and then I, uh, I went to Kenya and um, it was kind of nice to have an income while I was traveling, which doesn't always happen. And you're supposed to, you're supposed to every, every week or off, you're supposed to check in like, did you apply for jobs this week? And I'm like, yeah, uh, of course I did. I was, looking for, I was looking for work in, I was looking for work in Kenya. Um, so as uh, I, I don't know if I still could get in trouble for that statute of limitations is past that, but now it's like um, that unemployment is such a critical safety net for yeah. folks. And it's, it's great that it's been uh, at least in the United States, it's been um, increased the amount of unemployment people can get, but no one wants to rely on it. And yeah. our social safety nets often have so many holes in them and so much of the world doesn't have any. Well, that's, I, th I think that's what it, it's pointed out, right? Is there's always some talk off that there's something to go get. And, and I'm, I'm not discounting the, the challenges to, for that for so many people, but, or the challenge of being employed, not being able to afford a, a you know, get a living wage. But um, I think what this points out to people is what it might feel like in a, in a country that doesn't have that sort of opportunity. And you do end up with people that are desperate and trying to, to, to get some opportunity that doesn't exist. Um, because that is certainly what's happening right now. How long will that last? I don't know, but, um, 
uh, jobs do matter and finding purpose in those jobs um, and, and growing from those jobs is, is key. And there aren't many options for people now. It's scary. Yeah, really. So here I am now working from home with my visitor Griffin, who you probably can hear in the background. Of course. He's a, he's a star of the show normally. He, he makes a guest appearance on this episode too uh, towards the end. But um, so this is a very real situation where a lot of people are from home working. Their kids are showing up on their Zoom calls or their dogs and cats are showing up on their Zoom calls. And, That's better than carrying yeah. your laptop to the bathroom, which we've seen that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was good. Arrive at Daddy's office. No, we're right at Daddy's office. Well, uh, this week, hey, Griffin, hey, Griffin, could you be quiet, a little quiet, buddy? Why don't you go play out, out there? In 100 feet, arrive at the office. Well, this week, um, we're talking to Cole Cresilius, who believes jobs matter almost more than anything. So I've known Cole for a few years, had a chance to meet him um, once, and, and I'm really excited for folks to to listen to our chat, um, so Cole has helped lead the modern movement integrating social good and business. He has founded and led multiple brands and worked to change the global apparel industry for the better and inform a new generation of consumers about the powerful role they play in the process. Cole got an early start as a social entrepreneur when he founded his first nonprofit and lifestyle brand while still attending college in 2007. Since then, his companies, Crochet Kids International and Known Supply, have worked to humanize the apparel industry by connecting the people who make clothes to the people who wear them. He is a wealth of knowledge and incredible inspiration to anyone looking to pursue meaningful work or become entrepreneurs themselves. Many of the obstacles he faced as a young founder are relatable to all of us who want to pursue vocations with purpose. So without further ado, Cole Priscillius. Cole, thank you so much uh, for coming on. We've known each other kind of for years and briefly met, I believe, once you were speaking at Ball State University and our friend Mitch Isaacs connected us backstage a little bit. But it's so great to have a chance to finally sit down and have a chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Excited to be here and and uh, what sort of unprecedented times we, we get to like have this conversation. So looking forward yeah. just to not only catch up, but dive into all of that so thanks for thanks for chatting with me today yeah for sure it's been it's been fun following your journey from the crochet kids days through known supply and and uh and now i saw yesterday you and your family had a fancy dinner uh what, what was fancy dinner like in in this age of the pandemic uh, man i you know we have two young kids at home and so as every parent is feeling at this stage of like not only being in quarantine or self-isolation in some form, but just the realities of it being persistent for the foreseeable future. It's like, we're just trying to get as creative as possible to um, put some whimsy and fun as well as some structure, some things to do during the day. So my wife spearheaded this fun little event where her kids made menus and we got dressed up and had a nice dinner. It was super fun. Yeah, that's great. How 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 did your kids react to that? And how how are they just reacting to everything? 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it has been really interesting. Our kids are pretty young, so four and two. And, you know, since they can't uh, like verbalize as well, maybe how they're feeling or what they're going through or what they miss, like it, it's, it's hard to really know, but you just see how challenging it really is. And you, you hear these heartbreaking comments of just like, you know, wishing they could see their friends or go to school, but it, it was sort of best summed up. We have really close neighbors who live, basically we share a driveway, but my wife's a nurse and she's still working. And so wow. we are trying to be really careful with, you know, uh, with our distancing. So we're not even seeing like a really close friends who are right there. And, and it was the evening and my son saw our neighbor walking into her house and he just said, bye. I, I wish we could touch you. Oh. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, that's so like, that's it. That's perfect. It's mm. so honest. And, um, yeah, I just love that. So we're getting by, um, you know, I think at the same time, there's a lot of beauty to be found in these moments, not to like, you know, over idealize this amazing moment that we have, but there, but there are special, special moments and opportunities to slow down. And, uh, I've been really encouraged by the ways we've been able to do that and, and how much fun that's been and, and seeing friends doing the same has been a really cool thing to see. And I look forward to being, few years down the line and looking back on this and seeing this moment um through a different lens because right now i think we're just a little too close to it yeah and my kids my daughter's 11 and my son is eight and my son is on the autism spectrum and so he's um super sweet and affectionate but if, if he's playing and you sit next to him he might say like hey could you go over there or He'll pick up his toys and go play somewhere else and just uh, kind of always interacts on his terms. But, um, but at times he wants to really play and connect. And, but, you know, when he wants to do that, you kind of need to be around there to make that happen. So it's been amazing to see how much, you know, their like, kids are around each other so much more. Harper's, yeah. my daughter doesn't have softball practice and we're not, you know, not going anywhere. So they're just around each other all the time. So when he's ready to play, she's there and they've been like riding the, you know, a bike together where they're both mm -hmm. on one bike and um, just you know, sports of pretends and, and forts and, and playing pretend and, and building forts. And it's just been really amazing to see that. So I completely feel you on that too. Yeah. It's like this moment, there are some really beautiful things of this slowing of the slowing down. Um, mm -hmm. But also, I mean, it's also just you know, terrifying and you almost feel guilty uh, embracing that beauty because of just the everything mm. that's happening yeah how about your house jay what's it been like well my my kids are at different ages you know so i've got one about to graduate college finishing her final sets of uh, her internship um, at the university of uh, children's hospital in cincinnati or cincinnati children's hospital i got a and my middle son is working and getting through college work. And then I have a 17 year old. So they are doing everything they can do to stay on task during the day. And mm. then two of them have been playing grand theft auto and <laughs> the other one has been watching nonstop Bob's burgers. So wow. it's a little noisy with five adults in the house, <laughs> much, much less loving and creative. It's more 
get out of the way. Are you using the TV? Where's the remote? Who took my root beer? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's great. Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, um, but I agree. It will be nice to look back on this and remember what it meant yeah. to us. Hmm. So cool. I, you know, as I followed your your journey, um, like how has being a father changed your work? Has how's it changed the the when you when you're working with people who are producing clothes in, in Uganda or Peru or India? How does it how does that make you feel? Is it, do you feel any different? Um, how has just fatherhood changed your the work that you do? Yeah, it's it's been really interesting and <clears throat> should be sad that, I mean, we got like a very early start into this whole notion of entrepreneurism and social entrepreneurism specifically. I mean, we were, you know, when I say we, my friends and I were 20 years old in college and set out on this path to start by giving women jobs in Uganda through making product. And, and you can imagine at that point, and, and there's a lot of reasons why I'm thankful for starting so young, um, partially because we were naive and we didn't know any better. We didn't know what we didn't know. And so we were able to start these, these uh, businesses and the supply chain that seemed kind of crazy at the time. Um, and we just didn't have as much responsibility and <clears throat> had the freedom to... Uh, to, you know, not get paid for a period of time or work second jobs and do all this stuff. And so as our businesses progressed, um, it really was, and we got married and now with kids, it's like, it's a whole other ball game. And a couple of things come to mind when I think about fatherhood in relationship to, you know, sort of this entrepreneurial journey. One is that, um, my work and especially as an entrepreneur, I mean, my work and sort of my identity just was increasingly tied to one another um, more and more. And that means tied to the successes of it and the moments of failure, the, the ups and downs. And, and being a father has been one sort of great equalizer for me because it's helped me to have perspective and uh, to have something that I get to be and that I get to try to get better at outside of work. Um, and being a dad is, is so meaningful and powerful. So that's been, that's been really cool and really important for me specifically because as somebody who just wants to achieve so much and, and grow things or build businesses, um, that grounding factor has been very vital. And then no doubt this understanding of what it means to be a parent and then to work in a context where you are working with other parents. You're working with people who are trying to put food on their own tables um, through the garments that they're making, the jobs that they have. And, uh, it's such a different and very important context to the work that we get to do and get to be a part of. Um, and the, the ability to relate there is something that I do not take for granted, or at least I try not to. Yeah, Cole, that's something that Kelsey and I talked about in the past. And certainly um, the supply chain you're involved with is, is different than most businesses, but it mm -hmm. is interesting as someone who is, 
driving business forward, even the people you employ, um, part of your purpose every day waking up isn't your success or the roof over your head or the brand you've created, but um, you know, you have to find some purpose in em employing people and giving them um, a means to to move forward in their own lives, right? So that mm -hmm. that is a responsibility of an entrepreneur that I don't think many of them think about once they get past the first bump. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, and, and for us, you know, I'm very grateful that we sort of started everything with the end in mind in the sense that our whole reason for being wasn't about making the coolest clothes or creating the coolest brand. It was about providing opportunities for people who otherwise wouldn't have them. The, those, you know, particularly those in developing nations and those who are just vulnerable to economic hardship and, and other things. And so everything else that we do gets to be a support network to that idea. Um, I, to this day, I always say it's like, I'm not a fashion designer. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not the person who cares about like every detail and aspect of the clothing that we, that, that we make. The clothing is a means to an end. It's gotta be great. It's gotta be quality. It's gotta be relevant because in doing all those things, then we can accomplish our initial mission better. But um, having that sort of end goal in sight makes all the difference. Yes. Why right. don't we start um, at the beginning a little bit with um, the origin story of Crochet Kids and so uh, and then kind of go from from there. Uh, so like Crochet Kids started with crocheting. It started with beanies. I have several different cro uh, Crochet Kids beanies, including one that Jay may have heard of before. I was uh, the world's greatest beanie. Do you remember the world's greatest beanie Kickstarter? Oh, cool. are you talking to me or Jay? Well, no, <laughs> I'm like, I was every, yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I, I have the world's greatest beanie and I was just looking for it because my wife hates the world's greatest beanie. It is, How? It's, well, because it's, uh, it's gotten stretched out. Oh yeah. And it's the, and it's, but it's super warm. It's super comfortable. It's got, my dog got a hold of us. It, so it's got some holes in it. <laughs> But it's still like I I love it because I you know I don't know how you wear like a beanie all the time because it you know it kind of hurts my head. But mm. the world's greatest beanie doesn't do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So well, it's, it's the uh, world's greatest. I mean, but it was also like a I think it was like a seventy five dollar Kickstarter, which most of your beanies aren't. I don't think seventy five dollars. No. So it uh, is a running joke. My seventy five dollar beanie that my wife but yeah she, I, I love it love it yeah man so the 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 origin stories um yeah speaking to that idea of the end the, sort of the end purpose of the business in mind i mean our, our beginnings were really humble we uh we were young and we had the opportunity through a variety of things, school, um, local churches uh, in the Pacific Northwest to travel and to get to experience what the developing world was all about through um, study abroad programs and mission trips and those sorts of things. And it was really through those experiences that, that it was laid on our heart that's like, man, we would love to find a way to help serve those that are most vulnerable and the, and the extreme poor in our world. 
And we part part of it, it was sort of twofold. One was that we grew up, myself and my two co-founders grew up in the inland Pacific Northwest. And we had growing up um, just no clue about um, how big the world was, about just the different cultures and the ways that people experience life. And so those once exposed to that, we wanted more of it. We wanted to learn and we wanted to just be better global citizens. Um, but then secondarily, you can't help but sort of see poverty firsthand and not want to do something about it um, or not be moved to try to make some sort of impact, small or large, just you, you need, you, it demands a response. And so through those experiences, those early experiences, we kept traveling and kept thinking about ways, volunteering with international aid organizations. And the key insight that we learned at a pretty early stage was that so many of the international aid programs that existed were focused on short-term aid, focused on providing you know, assistance, whether it be food, medicine, education, what have you, um, for a short period of time. And we saw that what was created as a result was sort of this cycle of dependency where, you know, people became reliant upon that thing. And we just, it just, the whole system looked a little broken to us because we believed, and especially for us sort of be having it be informed by our faith that, that people are created to be like, you know, to be uh, capable of, pursuing great things that's what we were told our whole life that we if we could dream something we could accomplish something and and so many of these programs were were just sort of putting people in a box like hey you need us and so we knew first that that needed to be broken um and you were like a teenager right i mean that's a pretty big i mean some people don't even get beyond that step we've you know we've had other guests that have talked about their journeys with mission trips or we actually talked with uh couple of the folks from uh no white saviors uh or mm. in uganda and the experiences yeah. that they've had and you know for a teenager to take that step and have that realization i mean wow that's that's some wisdom beyond your years it would seem yeah it would seem i wouldn't give us too much credit okay. <laughs> because i think that i think that also um you know there's a whole as with anybody you know a whole host of other folks and influences and people speaking into our life that they did help us realize, you know, aspects of that for sure. And so, yeah, we, we had that sort of insight and then we wanted to do something about it. And oddly enough, like it, I had learned how to crochet in high school and had started this small company where I was making, you know, crocheted beanies for friends and family and, you know, making a little bit of money we ended up spending it on a senior prom and thought we were really cool and innovative and looking back it was all just kind of ridiculous and and hilarious at this point but what we had was a skill and what we saw was that if we could teach that skill to somebody else it could be a job for somebody as opposed to you know putting a few extra dollars in our pockets um and so we 
you know, to not, to not make the story too long, we essentially got connected with some organizations in Uganda initially and uh, sort of walked through this process of, of figuring out what it would look like to start, start an organization on the ground there where we focused on long-term capacity building. We didn't have some of this verbiage at that time, um, but building capacity in individuals and giving them an income so that they could think about their futures and plan for those. And that started in 2007, where we took our first trip and uh, we were still in college and we had one friend who graduated early. So we went on a summer trip, we left him there. <laughs> literally. And he sort of manned the operation and the rest of us went back and finished school. And we we got this brand sort of rolling very humbly. Like people asked us how we, we figured out international shipping. How did you do it? It's like, well, when we needed to get yarn over there, we would either buy a plane ticket for somebody or we would find a church group that was going to Uganda and we'd load them up with yarn and then those same people would need to be coming back. And so we would load them up with finished hats. And that's wow. how we did shipping for mm. a few years, <laughs> longer than we should have. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, did you check all the appropriate boxes and the uh, customs regulations as <laughs> yeah. you're smuggling beanies across? Honestly, it is amazing that for years we just, we just, and we, friends and all sorts of people connected to us rolled through LAX customs with thousands of hats, thousands. And like it, so many just unchecked. Um, and then we started to get a few more questions and we were like, okay, we should probably figure, <laughs> figure out some more legit uh, logistics here. So one thing about the beanies, Jay, is that they're all, they're all hand-signed, too. Is that something that was done originally, or was that an idea that came later? You know, it's, you know, it's pretty hard to remember exactly, but it was, it was in a very, very early stage. I don't think it was planned like when we first went over there, but as we started to get some of the initial hats back, we just were trying to sell them to people and trying to help people understand that, you know, these aren't, these may look similar to other hats that you see sitting on a shelf or initially for us, we were setting up at concerts or schools just to try and shill some of this product. And we wanted people to realize that, that not only were these made different, but these were made by people that we knew intimately well, and their stories started to matter so much to us. These weren't anonymous you know, they weren't even anonymous women in Africa. It was our friend, Teddy. It was Beatrice. It was these women that, you know, people like our, our friends were sitting in grass thatch huts in Uganda with crocheting every single day. And so it was really early on where we said, well, they should just sign, you know, we should come up with a tag where they sign every single product um, so that we could tell their stories and help people understand the direct impact that they're having, that, that our purchases matter. And so we, we started that in 2007, maybe 2008, as we got going a little bit, and we do that to this day. 
um, with every item that we sell. It's sort of the, the promise that we make is that you can know, a, you know, you can know one of the makers behind um, the product that you own and the one that you wear. And I feel like, especially in 2007, 2008, that's almost a radical idea in, in the garment manufacturing, especially. I mean, um, there, when my first book came out, came out in 2008, where I wrote about the garment industry, um, I mean, there were a lot of uh, businesses that now have kind of evolved to be more transparent, open, and part of the conversation that yeah. then didn't even want to talk that about, oh, this, these clothes come from people who have families and are working in these factories. Mm. And they just, you know, they didn't even want to talk about, well, you could call the place and ask like, well, what countries this come from? And they say, I, I, we can't tell you. It's like, well, I, it gets delivered to me and then it's uh, legally has to have a tag that says where it came from. But mm. they were just so reluctant to have anything mm. to talk about when it came to people making their products. So, for you and and 2007 2008 to have him signed, I, I mm. it's awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, and you were you were so much at the you know ahead of your time and sort of at the tip of the spear of that of those questions. Um, and because there, for us, it was like we didn't realize that till later. For us, it wasn't about you know as I said that apparel and the product is always sort of secondary to our mission. For us, it was like it was missional to, to draw that connection for people. And then as we got a few years into it and as we started to grow and started to sell our product at major retailers like Nordstrom and other places. And, and we started to sort of look around and be like, wait, other people don't make their products. Like we make our products. Um, and you know, it, it started us to go going down this path of thinking what, what can we, how can we start to play a role in this larger narrative of like helping this transparency be something that is um, more normalized and that more customers are, you know, like Kelsey in 2008 asking those questions um, and starting to expect it. And so, yeah, it's like we were just going through the motions and saying, hey, how can we help this these individuals, this community in Uganda. And then as it scaled, it was like, whoa, um, we're tapping into something really unique and special here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, you know, the factory in Bangladesh, uh, the Rana Plaza factory collapsed you yeah. know, seven years ago this month. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like the industry has changed much since then? Do you feel like the conversations that you're having with other people in that space has evolved since in the last seven years? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I would say my sort of personal view on it is that I, it's starting to. Like it, it's just, and it's probably had a few false starts, but optimistically, I like to believe that it's starting to happen more and more. And I think, you know, people have different views on this as far as like what is driving that or what will continue to drive that. I think at the end of the day, the thing that drives it the most is consumer demand. And I think what we're seeing that is starting to 
you know, turn the corners is and wake these brands up to it is that enough people are talking about it and enough, um, individual shoppers and, you know, organizations, brands are bringing a level of transparency and clarity to, um, their supply chain that is putting pressure upward, um, on the other brands to, uh, on brands who traditionally wouldn't have been as open to be um, better about that. I think absolutely there's a lot of, um, you know, you could call it cause washing or similar to like the greenwashing of the sustainability movement and people taking half steps or little, you know, launching little initiatives here and there um, to act like they're taking steps toward ethical production when they're not really. But I think the pressure is mounting and I think that, um, you know, the next seven years are going to be really telling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've seen like a, you know, there wasn't a lot of when the first edition of my book came out, there wasn't a lot of really positive things to point towards. Yeah. Like I remember giving interviews and people like, well, what do you do? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I, remember, and I was like new to it, that, all of that. And I was like, we should vote for better people. You know, I didn't even know yeah. what to say. Yeah. And there wasn't a lot of great examples. Like, I mean, I've mentioned crochet kids from stages. A lot yeah. of times when I've talked to, you know, talked to students about crochet kids, that have an example to point to. And there's a lot more of those yeah. now. Um, and like the, the sweatshirt I'm wearing right now is uh, fair trade um, yeah. from Patagonia. And yeah, they have so many fair trade products now mm-hmm. along with some other brands like Prana. And, mm-hmm. and I, I know that um, it sounds like the crochet kids started so organically and that at first you probably all weren't even thinking like this should be a nonprofit or this should be this or that, or just like, Hey, we know how to crochet. These people crochet. Yeah. We sell the hats. We'll smuggle them. We'll smuggle them through. LAX. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, what was the, uh, going from that to deciding to become a nonprofit for crochet kids to, I know there was another spinoff uh, kind of nonprofit called capable. Mm-hmm. And now there's the B Corp that is mm-hmm. known supply. So what factors went into the decisions to the, how those entities were shaped? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. And it really goes along with our conversation, which is like, operating within this very dramatically shifting landscape. When we first started in 2007, we were um, structured as a nonprofit organization. And there was a, there was a lot of questions around that, even at that time. And people say, well, you know, two, like people would either say, um, uh, like, are you trying to help people or are you trying to make money? Like, which is it? And they want to say, they'd say, choose a box. Right. And we would just say, yes, we are trying to do both. And cause this is in this time, it's hard to think about now, but there was no sort of social good in business. There's no social entrepreneurship. It was, um, it was the early days of thinking about how you leverage business, uh, you know, operations in a way that makes a social impact. And so, I, I'm I'm very thankful that we started, and we wouldn't have got the start that we had it had we not um, started as a nonprofit. Uh, we were able to raise the funds we needed to start, you know, our operations in Uganda, um, 
And so much of the first, gosh, almost 10 years of that work was, was, uh, needed to be partially funded by donations just as we were testing out different like programmatic models testing out different um, production models all sorts of things as we were scaling from Uganda to Peru Um, but at the end of the day um, we got about 10 years in and we said okay this question has been looming over our heads is a nonprofit structure the best thing for us in perpetuity or is a for-profit structure something where we could create more impact? Because as a nonprofit, what we were doing was we were focusing on individuals and taking them from a place of extreme poverty towards self-reliance. And we were, so we were focusing on a depth of impact and we, you know, had graduated almost 300 women um, in Uganda and Peru through this program. We, we were, um, empl- employing them, training them in a skill in sewing or crocheting, and then teaching them all these life skills and, and entrepreneurial skills. And then we are graduating them out the other side as this like full package poverty, poverty alleviation program. And we did that for 10 years and that had its unique challenges of running our own factories and trying to do that at greater and greater scale. And then this for-profit question of like, okay, what if we thought about our impact a little bit differently? If we look at our work, we see that the best, most important thing we, we've been able to do out of everything is provide a job. Jobs matter almost more than anything else because a job is the place where people can start to even think about making other decisions in their life. And so what would it look like to focus solely on creating more and more jobs at bigger scale. And for that structure, we said a for-profit business is going to be able to scale that concept in better ways than a nonprofit could have. Simultaneously, there are some exciting things happening in the space. You mentioned fair trade. Fair trade um, was opening more partnerships with factories. So we saw them as a partner that we didn't have 10 years earlier. There wasn't any way to, to know about ethical production in 2007 because the, almost no factory you know, that we knew of or that was really in operation had the auditing and the, you know, that built into their fabric. I mean, fair trade and, stuff was almost all just like things that I probably would never wear. You know what I mean? 100%. Then in the beginning, it was... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a pair of shoes you would never want to go jogging in. And yeah. you know, if you had a fair trade underwear, they probably would dissolve or, uh, you know, yeah. I think it wasn't. <laughs> dissolve. Yeah. I don't think that's actually a thing. <laughs> that's a different kind of underwear, but that'll say, we'll save that for another podcast. Um, yeah. I think that it really, the space in and of itself was transforming that that's that was like the key difference that we wanted to make in that we wanted to have these values but create a product that was relevant um and so all that being said it's like we operated for 10 years as a nonprofit with this depth of impact model and then you know i always had it in my head where i said you know after around 10 years we need to like really look in the mirror and, and have an honest conversation about what the future of our work is going to be. And as that time approached, we started to look at it and said, okay, let's spin off the poverty alleviation work 
And that's going to be a nonprofit called Capable that's really going to be able to focus deeply on the insights and learning that we had around, you know, poverty alleviation work, specifically specifically in the areas where we were operating. Um, And then the business side, let's create a benefit corporation that can scale and, you know, uh, sort of grow in ways that we couldn't have as a nonprofit and employ as many people as possible through that and let's see what the impact is. And I, I'll sit, you know, admittedly, we'll say that we're going to do this for 10 years and then we're going to at least have like a direct comparison of like, what, what do we feel like created more impact? Um, and I don't think there's any right answer out there, but that's the way that we, that's the, the approach that we've decided to take up to this point in our journey. So if you felt, you feel like the, the, um, the B Corp has allowed you to, offer more jobs already is it allowed because it's only a few years into that i believe mm-hmm. is it already allowed you to ratchet up the number of jobs uh, that you've created yeah um absolutely especially by you know just looking at a volume of product produced right just if that were a metric um in that correlates to like the number of jobs and and that is an absolute yes but it's because we also shifted a piece of our business model. And this was the other really, really important insight and shift that we made from Crochet Kids, the headwear brand, you know, vertical apparel lifestyle brand to known supply, the, the sort of uh, guide in helping other people and, and everyone jump into ethical fashion was after after 10 years of operating as Crochet Kids, we, we sort of started our own, two of our own factories from the ground up, one in Uganda, one in Peru, where the reliance for the jobs at those places were fully on a singular brand, Crochet Kids. And we realized that that's not a great way to run a factory. <laughs> Because if one brand is having a tough season, if we did, if we had a tough season, if a, if a product or collection didn't hit, then our work, you know, the, the impact was, was affected by that. And so, and the other thing was we, you talk about this idea of signing products and, you know, connecting a customer to the person who made their product. If I'm being honest, we were kind of holding that idea hostage in a way that was that w- that wasn't allowing the the greatest number of people to experience it. We we're saying no, this is what we do, holding it so tightly to us that that it was our unique differentiator as a brand. So like why would we let other people have that? And in all reality, if our goal is really to impact and in you know, impact as many makers and connect as many customers to those makers. Why are we holding that so tightly to our own brand? Mm -hmm. Why aren't we just giving that away? And a big inspiration for this thinking was like around the same time was Elon Musk giving away his patents for uh, all of his technology around his batteries for his cars and those sorts of things. Cause he had the insight that said, if electric cars are going to be a thing, everyone needs to be be accessing them everyone needs to be touching one if there's going to be infrastructure built around it you know 
everyone needs to be able to build an electric car. And for us, we, I started to look at ethical apparel the same way and say, if we actually want to make a dent in ethical apparel, we need to be sharing this with anyone and everyone who wants to partner with us. If someone cares about the way we produce, why can't we make product for them for them to sell? And so we transition in that way, our business model to also have a B2B component where we're now operating and, and producing product, you know, producing our sort of core products, what we do best for all different types of nonprofits, businesses, organizations. And we're just saying the more people that do this, the better. And that's allowing us to increase the amount of products that we produce in a given year. What, um, so Cole, can you explain what a B Corp is? Yes, I can. And it's really interesting. This is, this is something that we learned through this process. Um, so B Corp is two things. Um, you can, anyone can do this. Anyone can go um, to the Benefit Corp, the B Corp website. Um, it's a company called B Labs that has made a, a sort of measurement system, um, an evaluation for businesses to show their sort of goodwill that they're putting into the world. And they measure that a lot of different ways through this really long form, but there's thousands of these uh, globally that are businesses who are stepping up and saying, we value social good and where you want to structure our business in a way that showcases this social good. And we want to take the additional step to have a third party organization audit that social good in ways that gives us a measurement and a benchmark to improve upon our social good over time. So that, so there's, so there's B labs, this organization that's doing that for all sorts of companies um, globally, but then there's also a legal structure called a benefit corporation. Um, and this is not available in every single state, even in the U S I don't know what the most recent metrics are, but it was funny because when we started known supply, we said, Oh, well, we want to be a benefit corporation. That seems to, you know, that seems to make a lot of sense. And because what it does, if you structurally, set yourself up as a benefit corporation is that it, um, it protects you from uh, investors essentially saying, no, your sole purpose is to maximize shareholder value. It, it's, it sort of says, no, as a benefit corporation, our social mission can be a core part of how we view in our success and the impact of our work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the, that's the legal structure side. So there's the sort of audited sort of certification process. And then there's the legal structure side. When we first started, we set ourselves up legally as a benefit corporation. We didn't know there was two things. We just were talking to our lawyer who was helping set up our business. And we said, we want to be a benefit corporation or a B Corp. And he says, great. And so we went through that whole process. And there are, there are statements you need to make in that legal process that, uh, that say, you know, this is our mission and purpose. This is why we want to set ourselves up in this way. But we did that. And then we thought we were done. We're like, great. We're a B Corp now. Like this is, this is awesome. And then come to find out uh, like a few months down the line after we were operating, 
you know, B Labs reached out and were like, oh, you should be a B Corp. And we're like, no, we already are a B Corp. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're a benefit corporation, which is good because we want B Corps to be benefit corporations because they are part of putting that legislation and that structural legal part into place. And we were like, oh, it was confusing to us yeah. even. So now, now, you know, we have some clarity. I think that's confusing still for people. Um, I think the difference when, you know, people, there was this structure, I think California was one of the earlier states to adopt it. Um, we didn't jump on the bandwagon early on because it, it didn't mean much like i didn't think it actually said much to a consumer i i think it if i'm being really honest i think to certain consumers it means something has a general positive association but i think there's a long way to go before people even yeah i mean i've never i've never even heard of it now um uh, I'm pretty knowledgeable about co the corporate structure and shareholder value and all those sorts of, uh, you know, daily boardroom discussions that happen. Um, it would be curious to see as many for-profit, you know, these big corporations, you know, like a company called Salesforce has an entire wing of, um, of, of charity work, right? There's a right. vice president of, and I don't know what they call this person, but that is supposed to, leave, supposed to be focused on that. Well, some of that, I'm not saying this for Salesforce. I don't know there specifically, but some of that's window dressing, right? It's PR, it's public relations. It's, it's a way to keep employee satisfaction high. It's all those things that go with right. it. Um, it would be interesting to see how many are searching for a mix of profits and sustainability when it comes to the, uh, you know, the environmental or um, uh, cultural or, um, you know, um, assistance they're giving across the board in some other way other than, uh, you know, some EBITDA number or something else. So it's really yeah. interesting. I'll have to look that up. How, how would somebody go to see what corporations might be in that structure in a way that would make you want to buy from them? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I'm guessing Gucci is not. <laughs> not that I know. I okay. don't Kelsey imagine don't, be. Kelsey was buying a bunch of shoes and stuff from him. So yeah. Kelsey. <laughs> So. You and your Gucci addiction is getting out of hand, bro. The world's best beanie. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, I want the world's best of everything now. <laughs> um, so um, B, I think it's bcorporation.net. I should, I should probably just look it up. But um, that, that is the place. So structurally, I'm not sure how you would know that, but the, yeah. the certification process and – um, and seeing a list of businesses broken down by category. And it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's across the board. I mean, even looking at it is B corporation.net. That's okay. just the letter B, not B E the letter B corporation.net. Um, everyone from Ben and Jerry's to, you know, technology platforms like Hootsuite to breweries, um, like new Belgium, it's, Interesting. it's a wide range of, um, of industries that are represented and, you know, there's a cost associated with it and there's, um, there it's, a, I don't know if it's a heavy lift that would be sort of subjective, but it's a, it's a substantial lift or effort to go through the evaluation process. And then it's something you actually have to, get reevaluated in some form every single year. So um, 
It's a, I, I believe in the, you know, these sort of platforming concepts. I think that there are in this movement, if you want to call it ethical fashion for our specific space or just sort of, um, you know, social good business practices. I think it sort of takes everybody. It takes the consumer, um, doing their best and purchasing in the ways that are supporting the businesses doing good. It takes brands who can spearhead that charge and, and showcase, you know, what these types of good business practices are. I think it takes these platforms like, you know, B labs, um, fair trade USA, these groups that are trying to make, um, supply chain or transparency, uh, more accessible to the brands. So it really, it, it takes everybody. Um, there's more and more out there is sort of the unfortunate part. Uh, well, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but, but it presents its own challenge. Kelsey, you were, you were talking earlier how when you first started your book, uh, there was no places to point people toward, you know, like yeah. who's, who's doing ethical business practices within fashion. I would say the problem today is is not who is because everybody has some form or something yeah. that they're doing. Um, and it's almost, you know, it's, there's sort of this white noise problem that's created that's around so like, Who's yeah, like, well is a yeah, question, right? exactly. Yeah. It's like, how do you start to start to choose through? Because when we first started, honestly, we, it was like, it was us um tom's shoes um was in the early days and just in the sense of like that idea of pairing social good practices and yeah. business mm -hmm. I, i've you know there's lots of opinions about their model and it's sort of effectiveness but like they were early days there was maybe a handful and so it was like oh we were the we were the social good headwear brand or the yeah. you know one of a short list so it was, um, you know, different times. <laughs> yeah, I think now we're at the times of, uh, there used to be a blog I followed a lot called Good Intentions Are Not Enough, right? Mm. Now we're at that stage. It needs to be like, what are the results of, you're trying to do the social good, what is the results of that? Um, mm. maybe, maybe to wrap up here, since we're getting close to um, probably pushing on an hour. Um, I know you got kids napping. I got kids upstairs that probably want to eat. <laughs> uh speaking of that social good is there and i know this isn't the best way to measure uh measure a social good but is there a story that from uh, is there a person that in the very beginning now that you've been doing this for you know 13 years is there someone who that you just kept tabs on or they've been a part of your life for 13 years that was uh, in Uganda or somewhere that just, that their story just like stands out to you and where they, were, where they are now. Yeah. So there's a lot. I mean, yeah, I think, so we had this initial group of 10 Ugandan women that we taught to crochet. And I remember in the early days, like, when we were first starting, we were so excited about that. And other people would look, would look at us and say, it's only, you're only helping 10 people. Like, aren't there millions of people? You're, you know, billions of people living in poverty. 
And people try to make, you know, in certain ways, like almost make us feel bad about that. But we were like, man, no, it's so meaningful and important. And to now get to zoom out and to see what even those 10 women are doing now, it's been so humbling and, you know, one of the greatest joys of my life to get to be a part of because you've seen, you know, a woman like uh, a caught Beatrice in Uganda who went on, she eventually graduated out of, of our program basically because she had started so many other businesses and was making money in other places where like crocheting wasn't really worth her time. (laughs) (laughs) Like it, it just wasn't. She's like, I like, I'm losing money if I'm here. (laughs) And that was one of the earliest, earliest stories of our work that, um, helped us to understand the impact of what we were we were doing and then another one was a gal named alanyo teddy a part of that initial group 13 years ago who's still working with us today who's like basically you know leading production in uganda um and and the products that we're making there she's you know managing portions of it and it's like she's she's got to be part of our work in in this impact that we've had for this entire time. And we're still connected with her. And that's sort of the other end of the spectrum, which is so cool. So yeah, I just can't overemphasize enough that the idea that, you know, what we choose to invest in products that we buy, all of that matters so much. And I, and we can't undermine that enough. And I especially don't think we can undermine it in this moment where every business is being so challenged by this pandemic crisis and all the more reason for us to be very mindful of where we're spending our money, because those are the businesses that are going to last and we get to have a say in that. So let's think about that, whether we're picking up, pizza from our local shop around the corner that we love and want to see stick around or we're investing in clothing that we're wearing, um, you know, in quarantine, all of that stuff matters a lot right now. Yeah. Oh boy. Here we got a visitor. I'm going to say hi to Cole and Jay. Hi. (laughs) What's up? He's actually wearing pants today, which is good. uh, Oh, Good man. He's just been going around in his underwear. What do you got in your cheeks, man? Here, now they can hear you, Griff. Say hi to him. Hello. Hi, bud. Hi, Griff. Is your dad wearing pants? (laughs) Or just you? (laughs) (laughs) You're silly. Ha ha. Okay, why don't you go play somewhere? (laughs) Go play, buddy. Play it to someone. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> Put it to someone. <laughs> uh, hey, go play. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're so silly. All right. Oh, there you go. Red face person to the door. But you know, that's that's one of the things I think about uh, in terms of businesses. Like sometimes we get so focused on we have to save business that we don't think about the people yeah. who are parts of that like you know what is the purpose of business if not to provide people with yeah um, 
opportunities and jobs and, and people with things and as opposed to just the relentless pursuit of growth at the cost of people. So I, I mean, I so appreciate what you're doing, uh, Cole, and what you've done through these years and the journey that you've been on and just for selfishly for me to be able to point to an example, to tell other people what they, what is possible, what they can do through the opportunity that, that business, the garment industry has to offer to folks. So for that, man, you are good people. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you guys for continuing to do the work you do to highlight um, not only the, you know, challenges, um, but the people and the solutions and, and, you know, the work like we're doing. What? Great. Yeah, what? Thank you, Cole. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Cole. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. So Jay, that was Cole. What did you think of Cole? Uh what a it was a it was a great interview. He's very engaging and um you know, like like so many people like Victoria uh and so many others we've talked to to be so young and to have such purpose and to have found that purpose so early on is always impressive to me. But um you know, I, it, one of the things that I took notes on when we were talking to him is we've heard this a number of times, but one aspect of his work and purpose behind his work, the only word I could think of was empowerment, right? Because, um, you know, he is he's providing jobs to these people so they get skills and sort of, you know, they get the, the bootstraps to pull up on to be able to move to the next thing. And he even talked about how success means some of these folks don't need, you know, to be crocheting clothes anymore right? They, they see mm-hmm. there's something bigger for them. They can move on to something else. And, and that's what success meant. Not, it, it wasn't to him some other metric. It was that they were prepared to go do something else. He loses them, you know, to a, to a, a better job or a better place in life. Um, and that was success. I thought that was really cool. And it's an interesting metric to, to think about and, and empowering people and the sort of the sort of charities that serve these groups. And I know you talk about this in your book, but how do you measure success in that? Um, this is certainly one metric could be used is did they move on to something better um, um, after that, that, that start they got from something small. I thought it was, he must've had some really good people in his life to kind of help guide him and questioning really early on. Cause it sounds like it was kind of, um, you know, kind of, this kind of came out of a mission trip, which isn't, Mm-hmm. always coming with the best perspective i feel like in terms of um how are you empowering people um, right right if you're just witnessing to people or yeah so to be that to be basically a teenager or early 20s the the oldest to start kind of questioning questioning the system a little mm-hmm. bit i thought was pretty um was pretty amazing to be because i don't know if i would have at that age sort of question that no no i don't think so either it'd be interesting um you know our interview with liz um, bolts ranfield way back when her leadership was different than that now we're we're kind of looking at coals like we know what they were like but it seems like the results a little different right um than what she experienced she had to actually come out of that experience and change where um uh, he found something of purpose within that same experience so that uh that certainly is a, a differentiation between the two uh, youth programs. One of the things that really stood out to me um, 
we didn't dive into this a whole lot because uh, he had so much uh, else to share. But kind of getting back to jobs and how when I asked him about being a father, how you, you, he kind of hinted that before he became a father, his identity was so is is so much of his identity came from his job. Mm. And yeah. uh, now that we're at this time where so many people are losing their job that I hope other people can kind of take that to heart and realize that, you know, hopefully we're all more than our jobs. Hopefully we can um, live lives of, of purpose and meaning and have hobbies. And uh, I mean, I feel like I say this every episode, but like, I, I wish I had different lives, one life to play video games, one <laughs> life to be Victoria Milko, one life yeah. to be Cole yep. Basilius, yep. Uh, one life to be Jay Mormon. Oh yeah, um, no doubt. You know, I I could just have a whole life. I think just sitting and reading books that would be yeah. amazing. Just to learn, be a scholar. Yeah, in the, in the Greek style. Yeah, and, and as much as I like to think that my because I don't I don't really have a traditional job. How much of my ego, how much of my identity is tied up in my job? I'm looking at my second book right now, and I'm on the freaking cover. You know, yeah, uh, uh, of it and. So it's, I don't know. It's something to process, but I thought Cole's view of that and how his kids kind of give gave him a little bit of more perspective. And I hope that for all those you know, 16 million people have lost their jobs so far and 70% of Americans and Lord knows how many people around the world have lost their jobs, that they can find something that gives them that perspective. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I agree. And it's, I posted an article on Facebook the other day. Um, maybe you can link to it in the uh, show notes, but um, it's the title of it is prepare for the ultimate gaslighting. Um, uh, and it's on forge.medium.com, which I had never been on before, but um, it asks that question and it talks about, they're calling this the, well, this article called the, called this the great pause, which I, I think is an interesting way to look at it. And, God, you don't have to be on the internet too long to see it. You know, I don't know if you've seen, uh, was it Botticelli, I think, who was singing opera and they showed him standing below the Eiffel, Ta- Eiffel Tower and there's nobody around him. Wow, yeah. I mean, completely empty, Paris, crazy. Um, you know, and this article talks about that. You know, the pollution in LA is down. You know, there's lots of pictures of cleaner water and um, uh, just the amount of, of nature coyotes showing up uh, in, in places where, you know, were just cars and, and masses amounts, massive amounts of people. But this article talks about this. Are we learning something from this time? Um, we've seen that social systems break. We see that those that need care um, often fall through the cracks. We see our healthcare system. Um, while it's pretty obvious to say it wasn't prepared for something this big, you could argue whether they could have or not, but Especially how it's linked to jobs too, right? I mean, healthcare yeah. is with your job. So yeah, often. right. Um, but, you know, it wasn't ready and the system is overwhelmed. And then you start looking at all the people that were some of the lowest paid in the country are the only ones that are still working, right? Not counting healthcare workers. I'm sure there are some there too, like AIDS and other people that are doing uh, lower level work other than doctors and nurses. But, um, and I say lower in air quotes, but then you got, people working at the grocery store, you got people that are picking up our garbage, people that are, that are doing those things that we as Americans don't necessarily value, necessarily value with money. Um, 
So the question is, when this is over and this starts again, like we talked at the beginning of the episode, what are we going to do differently? What do we, what did we learn from this? And, and, and how is it going to change how we act, vote, volunteer? Where do we give our time? Where do we give our money? Um, because it certainly, I think for a lot of people has highlighted things they didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just to get back to, to Cole and like the whole um, kind of purpose of, of his social entrepreneurial career of like, there's a person on the other end of this chain, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of been so much at the heart of my work too, that once we start to think about, Oh my God, my shirt was made by someone. What is their life? Like one of the challenges that they face and how are we connected? And I think yeah. known supply and crochet kids does that. And it kind of, once it starts to, um, leads to just more questions. If we, we didn't think about the person who made our, our clothes before, we didn't think about the, the, maybe the people who were taking care of our parents uh, at, a, at a facility and the risk that they're taking at a time like this. And yeah. um, I, it's something I keep coming to, and we could do a whole episode on this maybe later. I'd have to do some more research on it is what is a person, what is a person worth? Um, and I, the insurance companies actually break this down of like, what is a life worth? And in different countries, it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like Give Directly, which is a, you know, a program that gives direct cash deposit, cash transfers to poor people around the world. Now they're actually operating in the United States as well during the time of COVID-19. Crazy. Um, yeah. You know, they figure that they can save lives pretty efficiently by just giving people money um and so you know what is a life worth as we're trying to decide when do we open up this economy so to get people back to work versus when you know just trying to to maintain our our, our safety by staying away from yeah. everything there's this balance uh that I mean, I'm, I'm not smart enough to figure out what that balance is but there's no doubt if we leave the world shut down forever yeah uh, people won't have money to buy food um people yeah. be in poverty uh so right yeah I, that's the question i've been asking all along is okay once the the curve flattens or at least starts to decline how much decline makes this a responsible decision to make now we won't get into the stupid arguments of our our chief executive saying that it's his decision but I'll let that one go, but um, some those decisions are going to have to be made, and somebody's going to have to say to me, "Hey, your office is open again. Feel free to go in and interact with all those people." Um, and you know, the businesses you support can also do the same thing, and then the whole engine starts to cycle up again. At what at what point is it worth the risk risk to lives to do that? We all know. I think the majority of us, other than one. Uh, one specific TV channel knows that it's probably too early. We can't do that. Shouldn't do that yet. Um, Cause it's not a hoax. This is, this is mm-hmm. something very serious, but at some point it's going to decline enough. We're going to have to turn w- one light on at a time until the whole house is lit up again. That's going to be hard. And that, that does come back to, you know, life is more important than uh, the survival of, um, you know, Ford motor company, for example. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm concerned and scared for people in our own country and, and for people around the world who don't have the support that, that we have, uh, who are, are being forced to stay in their slum community um, yeah. and can't yeah. go out to get work. And just, it's a crazy time right now. And well, I think we'll continue to process it. I mean, it seems like it relates to absolutely every topic you, we could talk about. So I'm sure that it won't be the last time that we address it. No, um, and we've got we've got a couple guests I think that are lined up here that um, um, uh, are, are medical professionals that are going to be able to talk to us a little bit about this and maybe how we're all reacting from grief to sadness to um, anxiety and um, we'll get into some of that with them and I think that'll be interesting for people. Yeah, looking forward to that because I sure need to process all this too, and I feel like I'm completely incapable to process the water that's surrounding me when I'm swimming in it. Yeah, it's uh, hard. So to learn more about coal and coal's work, you can go to knownsupply.com, uh, kind of look at the good things that they're doing there. Just really thankful to have him on for him to take the time uh, away from his family. I guess they were uh, the next room over and from his very important work to, to join us. So until next time, Jay. See you, Kelsey. Take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.